You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Earlier this year, I got a call from my friend, Jesse Pascarelli. Hello. Hello, hello. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. We're off to a good start. Very successful podcast so far. (laughs) Jesse and I met a few years ago at a comedy festival in Austin, Texas, and we have spent many nights doing bits in diners with friends. Things like Michael Caine impressions, or making french fries talk to each other, or making french fries do Michael Caine impressions. But Jessie wasn't calling to do bits. She was calling because of something that happened a few months ago. Jessie and her friend Danielle were on the porch drinking hot cocoa. And Danielle mentioned something about a friend of her uncle's who was helping her with some work stuff. And she said kind of in passing, my, I'm named after my uncle who died. And she, I said, put a pin in that and let's come back to it because that's interesting to me. Let's like circle back after you tell me the rest of this story. Mm-hmm. And when we circled back, she said uh, that she, her name is Danielle and her uncle's name was Danny. And uh, she was named after him and that he had died in a car accident in his 20s. And I said, hold on a second. I don't know. I really don't know anyone else who's named after an aunt or uncle. Most people I meet, their aunts and uncles are so alive. <laughs> so yeah. they, uh, it's not usually like a common thing to be named after an aunt or uncle. Uh, and I don't know anyone else who is named after someone who dies specifically in their 20s in a car accident. Being parented by the sibling of the person you were named after, who died and young in a violent way, is a very particular experience. For Jessie, who's named after her aunt Jessie, a big part of that very particular experience is feeling like her name is intended to be this continuation of another person's story. But it's a story that Jessie doesn't really know. I think one of the reasons why it feels kind of like an incomplete narrative to me is because it's never been told as a narrative. It's always been just kind of piecemeal things that are dropped into conversation. I don't remember the first time my mom told me, you're named after my sister who died. So there's never been, like there's just been kind of little drips and drabs of information that have come through over time. Lately, Jessie's been feeling like she wants to know the whole story. I'm feeling a little nervous, honestly, which is I was not expecting to. Oh, oh, oh. What uh, what is making you feel nervous? I guess I just feel a little nervous about, like, trying to get my waspy family to talk about feelings. <laughs> now, folks, it probably won't surprise you to learn that I have a lot of phone calls like this. People with family ghost stories are often worried that their family members won't be willing to talk about difficult things from the past. But some families are particularly tough. And Jessie figured her family might be one of those. To give you a little context, when my mom told her parents that she wanted to name me after their daughter who had died and her Mm -hmm. sister who had died, 
their response was, you shouldn't do that uh, because then every time we look at your daughter, we'll feel sad. Even the idea of potentially having a feeling, they tried to like preemptively avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Jessie herself hasn't always known quite what to make of her own name. It wasn't until that conversation with Danielle that her feelings started to come into focus. The feeling of there being a certain expectation, whether it was communicated by the parent or not, of like, you are named after this person, and kind of trying to draw the lines for yourself, like, how am I similar to that person from what I've heard from my family about them? How am I not similar to them? Do I look Do I look anything like them? Do I act anything like them? Should I be trying to be more like them? Should I be trying to be less like them? From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. This week, Jesse embarks on a quest to answer those questions, and a few more she didn't even know she had. Our story begins right after the break. Do you have a, a first memory of finding out about the origin of your name? I don't have a first memory, but I have a series of memories, mostly of my mom telling us to put our seatbelts on and then invoking her sister who had died in a car accident as the reason we needed to shape up and put our seatbelts on right effing now. <laughs> um, like, through my entire life, you know, a boyfriend gets in the car, doesn't immediately put a seatbelt on. My mom turning and saying, did you know I had a sister who died in a car accident? Why don't you put your seatbelt on? There's a picture of them on my mom that's always been on my mom's, uh, like, dresser, vanity, wherever she always has it near her. And it's a photo of them sitting on uh, the steps of this little cabin that is in the family. And my Aunt Jessie is sitting like two steps above my mom and doing bunny ears behind her head. And my mom is making a face like, I know there's bunny ears behind my head. It felt like for a while, I had kind of a stagnant image of her up until like my early teens. And that stagnant image was just like, she died in a car accident. She was funny and she was kind of mean. And she was my mom's best friend and they were super close. It felt like a coloring book. I obviously knew that there were things that I didn't know. I didn't think that like this black and white coloring book page was completely filled in for me, but it would be almost like my mom would color in a part of the coloring book that I didn't know existed. It, did, it never felt like, okay, here's a story that I'm gonna tell you. It was just kind of details that were dropped in. They grew up in the Boston area, so having lobster for dinner was not an uncommon thing. And uh, on lobster night, apparently my Aunt Jessie didn't like lobster, and she at one point hid a lobster shell in her closet that she shared with my mom. So (laughs) you can imagine that after even like a day, but this was probably several days to several weeks, their room smelled awful because there was a rotting lobster shell in their closet. And then she had kind of the um, rebellious teenager phase. Jesse and my mom got mad at each other while they were in London for a family wedding. 
Jesse took the dress my mom was planning on wearing to the wedding, lit it on fire, and threw it out the hotel room window. <laughs> she stole my grandpa's truck and crashed it. She got into a fist fight at her high school prom. Those I don't think those happened. Like they're not connected stories, but they just happened to get <laughs> together. I mean, that is probably a couplet in a country song. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then, you know, some time passes. I have no idea what happened in that time. And she kind of got over this rebellious phase, or at least that's the story that I've heard. And she was going to school to become a nurse. And she was on her way either to a shift as a nurse or to school um, when she was in the car accident. It felt like there was a period when I was in late middle school and high school that like once a year, my mom would drop some bomb of knowledge about the car accident specifically that would I would be like, I can't believe you just mentioned that casually while you were driving me to soccer practice. <laughs> um, like, you know, that she was driving a T-top convertible that, and that was the car she was driving when she died. And I knew that they had never been wearing seatbelts, but I didn't know that they were in a convertible, which makes it like way, like not wearing seatbelt in a convertible that it seems like it made way more sense why it was such a deadly crash. Uh, or like, you know, dropping in that my, that her uncle Peter, my great uncle Peter had to go identify her um, when she died. That was my, my uncle Peter is just a quintessential frail old man. It's, mm -hmm. he wasn't obviously at that time, but he, like, that just breaks my heart to think of him having to do that. My mom has always said that if you get bad news in the middle of the night, don't call till the next morning. I don't know who it was who called my mom to tell her that her sister had died, but she said it was the worst because she couldn't do anything. She went back to sleep or tried to. My mom has had trouble sleeping my whole life, and I wonder how much of that stems from waiting for a horrible phone call in the middle of the night. Mm. Yeah. When my grandparents have died or if, like, you know, we get bad news about something. My mom doesn't usually, if it happens like 9.30, 10 at night, her time, she's probably not going to tell me till the next day. Right. And I think it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, the gift of one more night's sleep without having to think about it. I don't know why I'm finding that very affecting. Just that, that phrase it, you used, the gift of one more night's sleep. I find it really meaningful. I think that it is the kind of thing you don't know you want until you have it, you know? Like, you don't know that you don't want to hear the bad news until the next day, until yeah. you've gotten the bad news in the middle of the night, and then you can't sleep, and then you're you, then you're dealing with it in the morning when you haven't slept, and you're like, it's just like one more, not having slept the night before is just like one thing. Like, if you can, you can take that off of someone's plate. You can say, have one more peaceful night. I don't know why it's making me think of this, but people hear stories like this one about what happened to your aunt. And I think sometimes their reaction is to say, well, obviously that's very tragic, but it's just a freak accident. Why are you, Jesse, haunted by it? Or why, why would someone else in your family be haunted by it? And I think this is such an illustration of why it's not just a freak accident. And you can't write it off because there's a way in which she's reliving the accident every night when she tries to go to bed. Yeah. Like I, I had told you before that she would, you know, whip around in her seat and say, you know, my sister died in the car accident. That's why you can wear your seatbelt right now. 
to anybody in the car. And it makes me think that, you know, there are certain things in her life that she probably can't do without thinking about her sister, like getting into a car and putting her seatbelt on. I got the sense that another thing that really haunts Jesse's mom about the car accident is that it happened at a moment of transition. In her mind, just before the crash, her sister was finally getting her act together. She would push back against people saying that my Aunt Jessie was a saint. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And she said, you don't become a saint or an angel just because you die. Mm. She was kind of a bitch sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> there was kind of this shift of, oh, she was such a troublemaker. And then she, and then out of nowhere, she just kind of turned her life around and was becoming a nurse. And But there's no in-between. There was no sense of why that happened or if it if it really was her kind of turning her life around of being less of a troublemaker and becoming kind of like growing up a little bit it seems like an incomplete picture of what i've been told was a big change and that's part of what's confusing for jesse if she was named after aunt jesse to honor her memory which part is she supposed to honor if anything my mom I don't remember her saying anything explicitly, but I don't think she really wanted me to emulate her sister. (laughs) So Jessie's been left to find her own connections to Aunt Jessie. And recently, she discovered there may be more of them than she realized. What's happening for you life-wise right now? Ooh, Big question. Um, well, uh, it's been a period of a lot of transitions. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Ghost family, I mentioned at the top of the show that I met this week's storyteller, Jesse Pascarelli, at a comedy festival. Now, I know it might not be obvious from the heavy subject matter that we tend to cover here on the show, but writing comedy sketches was a big part of my life for a long time. And as anybody who's ever written comedy sketches knows, on the rare occasions when you write one that's even a little bit funny, usually when you go back to it a few years later, it doesn't hold up. I sometimes look back at the sketches I wrote in those days, and I wonder how I ever convinced myself that they should see the light of day. But one of the rare exceptions is a parody, or more of an homage, really, to the podcast Welcome to Night Vale, called Welcome to Night Baseball. I wrote the sketch with my friend Alan, and it imagines what it would be like if a Baltimore Orioles baseball game was broadcast on a small community radio station in the middle of a remote town where unexplained supernatural events happen all the time. Alan plays a broadcaster named August Magnolia with a very ominous intone, and I play a color commentator who gets eaten by an amalgamation of tentacles. If that sounds like a fittingly surreal escape from these very surreal times, you can hear that sketch in our Patreon feed, which you can access for just $5 a month. In addition to bonus episodes like Welcome to Night Baseball, Our Patreon subscribers get access to all Family Ghosts episodes ad-free, as well as the warm feeling of knowing that their support keeps the mics hot here at WALT-FM. 
If you appreciate the work we do, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And thank you. Right before the pandemic, my long-term live-in relationship ended. And I moved into an apartment by myself for the first time ever. And I think the last like nine or 10 months have been a lot of self-discovery and redefining what my life is like without this huge part of it. I was planning my life around the existence of this relationship. And since it is not part of my life anymore, it's been a pretty big recalibration. At the time it came apart, did you have a a narrative in your head about where it was headed? Yes. I think the narrative in my head was we've been together for a while. We've enmeshed our lives to a large degree. One of the aspects of our relationship that was always a point of, um, I don't want to say tension because it didn't feel like it was something we argued about. It was just something that was kind of always in the ether was uh, our physical location. We were living in Portland, Oregon. So my my ex's name is Theo, but I refer to him as Teddy because that's what his parents call him. And Teddy just kind of has itchy feet. That's always how we said it. Like his, his feet would get itchy and he would just be ready to move on or do something else. And that was kind of his MO for his entire adult life, uh, you know, in college and beyond, he would just kind of get a hankering to live somewhere else for a while and he'd go do it. That's not my MO. I am a homebody. I like, I like being home. I'm not even like a huge fan of traveling for travel's sake. So we had done as much as buying a converted school bus to split the year up into three parts and you know, live part of the year in Washington, part of the year in Texas, and part of the year in New Hampshire. When we started thinking about the bus, it seemed like such a good solution to address some of our issues. Teddy had perpetually itchy feet, so this would be a way to travel a lot. But I was really missing the connection to community and to my family. And so we could potentially live close to our friends and also potentially close to both of our sets of parents. And it seemed like a way to compromise his desire to kind of change things up constantly. And also my desire to live in the same place because our house would be the same, but the location it was would be different. (laughs) Yeah, it was like tiny house plus itchy feet. Right, which seemed like, I mean, honestly, I still don't think it's a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) So we found this really lovely couple who were moving out of their bus. They had this bus that had a layout that seemed very close to what we would have done. Um, And it was ready to go. And so I was not in a position to buy the bus, but so, but Teddy bought the bus. People don't talk about buses in the bus world in terms of length. They usually talk about in terms of windows. (laughs) That's 
a more, I guess, accurate measurement. (laughs) So I actually don't, I guess we must, we probably had like about 17 windows. That was about 32 feet. So it's a big vehicle. It's a really big vehicle. From the outside, it definitely looked like a school bus. And then from the inside, you would probably think it was a very long, skinny log cabin. It had a little living room with couches that faced each other. We actually built a couch that had a table underneath it so you could take the table out and basically have like two bench seats with a dining table between them. Then we had a little storage area that was right across from a wood stove. And then you walked to the kitchen. It was great. It was like the perfect size. There was plenty of storage, so much space. It had a really deep sink, better than any apartment sink I've ever had. You had um, a little bathroom that had a shower and a composting toilet. And then the bedroom, which is basically enough room for the bed. And then what we called the garage, which was the, the big emergency door in the back of the bus. There was storage for hoses, because you need to fill your freshwater tank and all that kind of fun stuff. The first time we actually saw it together, it was when the couple who had converted it, they were living on it. And it was kind of a cloudy, muggy day, which is not uncommon in Portland. And they were parked at a rest stop, maybe 20 minutes south of where we lived in Portland. So we drove to the rest stop. And I remember that the windows were all fogged up because we were all sitting inside the bus with the stove going. And I remember feeling very cozy. The first night we spent on the bus was actually really lovely. We just found a pull-off on like a rural road right next to this big field. And we just kind of, we just slept there for the night. And it was, we watched the sunset and that was really lovely. We spent a few days camping at this state park in Oregon, and that was probably the best time that we had on the bus. If it could have been like that, I was like, this is great. Like spending time in the great outdoors, I can set up a hammock and read my book and sleep on a bed instead of, you know, it was all like, that was, it was idyllic. Yeah. Uh, It's like moving the house around and having different backyards kind of. Yeah, exactly. The plan was to, get down to Austin. So we're in Portland and we drove south. We had decided not to get rid of my car. I have a hatchback. So I would drive with the dogs in the hatchback. And then I would like be like the little satellite vehicle that would like go to the grocery store or go to, um, you know, you know, scout ahead and see if there's a place to park. Um, Wait, so you, you embark on this several thousand mile drive from Portland to Texas and Theo's driving the bus by himself and you're driving the hatchback by yourself. Yeah. Do you remember what was going through your mind when you first set off for Austin and you're driving by yourself in the car with the dogs and Theo's driving the bus? Do you remember any particular thoughts that went through your mind? I remember feeling excited until... We stopped for the first time. Okay. <laughs> uh, because Teddy got out of the bus and he was just driving that bus. I don't know if it would have been miserable for everyone, but it was miserable for him. Um, it was really, really loud. It was really slow and heavy and unwieldy. And there's a reason that school buses 
drive the same route over and over again and usually don't go more than like 40 or 50 miles an hour. It's because they're not really designed to do that. <laughs> and so trying to drive it through some like hilly areas of Oregon where like, he would be going up a hill and he'd be going less than 10 miles an hour just because the bus is so heavy. And, you know, people backing up behind us and getting mad at us. And and it was so loud. He had to wear like construction sized headphones over his ears with earbuds in while he was driving. And this is a person who, when we didn't have blackout shades, was would have a hard time sleeping because like a, a chink of light would, would disturb him. Or like if I, if he if we, he was playing he was a guitar player, if the AC was on or like the ice maker was going while he was practicing, he would have to turn it off. Just a very sensitive person. And I just remember feeling like, I don't know if I actually felt this way, but now in retrospect, like even thinking about it is making me feel really tense. <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm incorrect. Um, I just felt so guilty. Mm. How so? I felt like I had pushed for this to happen because I really wanted to be in Austin and I wanted it to happen in a way that we would both be happy. But as soon as we got that bus idea, I just I just pushed for it so hard like to the point that when we got a bad inspection on the bus, I got really upset and cried about it. And Teddy, I think, I think that if I hadn't gotten so upset about it, I don't know if he would have gone to a second inspection place and tried to, like if he would have continued trying to make it work. And then he put so much money into it. It just, I just felt so guilty that I felt like it was my fault that he was, driving this huge vehicle that he had put a lot of money on and it was ostensibly because I wanted to live somewhere else. I remember when we got out of the bus or when Teddy got out of the bus and I don't know if this was a specific moment or if I'm just making an amalgamation of different times that like I had just been driving and it was fine and you know I had the dogs with me and I was listening to podcasts and I was like no this is like you know kind of a long road trip it's not that bad and then getting out of the bus and see Teddy get out of the bus and he would just be wrecked he was just he was really anxious and tired and not knowing if that was like something that was going to happen every time he drove the bus or if this was something he just had to get used to um he also didn't want me to drive the bus which um I understand but also i I felt like it would be better if we could trade off on this really hard responsibility, but he, he I think because it was his, um, you know, it was a big purchase that he had made. He didn't feel comfortable. He didn't want, he didn't feel comfortable. I think having me be responsible for it in either sense, like that I like if anything happened, I would be responsible for it. And if anything happened, it wouldn't have been him being responsible for it. It became clear, like, within a few days of owning the bus that we weren't going to be able to make it to Austin. Uh-huh. Um, like, at all? And at all. But we needed more time to figure things out with the bus. And so we ended up driving north again to Theo's parents' house, who live on the Puget Sound in Washington. Oh, okay. So you reverse course completely. Yes. The idea behind going there was to regroup a little bit yeah to regroup to maybe uh 
you know, figure out some stuff with the bus, get things fixed that we needed to. Um, then it got to be winter and we kept trying to, it felt like every time we tried to leave Washington, something would happen and the bus would break down and we'd have to stay in Washington and try and get it fixed. We'd take the bus to the mechanic. We'd have the inevitable, really weird conversation with the mechanic who would say something like, why are you living like this? Who would ever make this choice? And they would fix whatever the thing was. We'd drive it away. We'd get ready to leave. And then as soon as we were trying to leave, something else would break. There was one memorable time where um, you can't have a vehicle the same color of yellow as a school bus, if it's not a school bus, which makes sense because you don't want people painting any random vehicle the color of a school bus and telling kids it's a school bus. And then they are like, oh yeah, I, I'll get on the bus. But that meant we had to paint the bus and painting a 30 foot long bus takes a minute. So, because we also had to tape everything. Um, and then we accidentally painted some of the panels shut. <laughs> uh, what color did you paint the bus? We painted it white, to which my mom's first reaction was, uh, so like a prison bus. Oof. And I was like, well, I didn't have that in my head till now, but yes. <laughs> now I can like never unthink that. <laughs> right. <laughs> now that's forever what I think when I look at this gigantic bus that seems to be keeping me in Washington and seems to be causing my partner to have so much stress in his life that he's making himself sick. It does seem like a prison bus. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts of Aunt Jessie during the bus time? Was there ever anything that came to mind about her in the midst of all this? Well, there was one time, I don't know if I've, if if you include this story, you please include this soundbite. I'm really sorry, Mom, that I didn't tell you about this. But also I'm not sorry because you would have been extremely scared and I didn't want to scare you. Um, but there was one time where Teddy and I were doing our, our bus hatchback caravan where I was following, we were on a mountain road on one of these little highways. It's two lanes, except for every few miles, there's a passing lane. And we would always get in the right-hand lane in these passing lanes as quickly as possible to let as many cars as possible pass us so that because they would often like we would have a huge buildup on these two lane roads of cars who were trailing behind us in this very slow vehicle so we would pull over to the passing lane and let everybody pass us as as many people as we could so we were doing that one time and we had developed a huge line of cars behind us and one of the vehicles behind us was um it was one of those gigantic vehicles that's not just an RV, but an RV with a trailer on it. And they were hauling all of their bikes. And like, it was smaller than a semi, but kind of looked like an RV and was but, way, but seemed way bigger than an RV. This rig very clearly wanted to pass us and wanted to use this passing lane to pass us. And the thing about the bus was you couldn't make any sudden movements. You couldn't make any sudden decisions. and you know, the passing lane was ending. So Teddy started like coming back into the left-hand lane to when the passing lane ended. And the trailer didn't want to let him. Instead, they did that weird thing where they're like, where you're trying to pass somebody and then they speed up to prevent you from passing. 
And so then you're maybe in the wrong side, you're going on the wrong side of the road trying to pass and you can't. And uh, I was, I was right there because I was following Teddy and I watched it all happen. And I don't know if he even knows how close this came to being a horrible, horrible accident. Um, but it only very narrowly, like the, the rig only like so narrowly stopped in time to not hit him as he reemerged. And I was also like, I'm right here in this tiny little vehicle. I'm no, like, if something, if the, one of them had spun out, I'm in the collision path. My heart was in my throat and I, I think I held it together until we actually stopped. And then I just sat in the car and cried because I thought of my aunt. As Jesse told me this story, I realized my heart was in my throat. I mean, it's like something from a myth. When Aunt Jessie had her fatal crash, she was on the road with her partner. She'd just decided to make this big change in her life. And now here was Jessie, decades later, doing the same thing. Once again, the tires squeal. For a terrible moment, it seems like history is about to repeat itself. But this time, the accident doesn't happen. In the blink of the same eye, Aunt Jessie's story ended. But Jessie's goes on. Eventually, Jessie left Puget Sound and flew to Austin for a friend's wedding. One night on the phone, Teddy called and told her that he had decided to sell the bus. Jessie says she felt this wave of relief and soon enough, Teddy joined her in Austin. But before long, Teddy's feet started to itch again. And this time, they decided to end their relationship. A few days after we talked, Jesse sent me a voice memo. I'm on a hike, and... And what I started thinking about when I wanted to start recording was this idea of my Aunt Jessie's life as a series of chapters in a book. In February of 2020, my relationship of four years ended. And you could say it ended abruptly or you could say it was a long, slow decline. My ex and I sometimes talked about chapters, chapters in our lives. The Portland chapter, the bus chapter. Now I think of our relationship as a chapter in my life. I started thinking about this because in talking to people about my Aunt Jessie's life, the impression I'm getting is that she was between chapters. That maybe she was at the beginning of the figuring out what she wanted to do with her life chapter. She was somewhere in the chapter of her relationship with her boyfriend at the time. And I guess what I'm thinking about is that trying to divide your life up into chapters into neat blocks is a way of trying to organize your experience. I don't think it's a pointless endeavor, 
I do think it's important to remember and to be aware of the fact that depending on how you decide to chop it up, you can tell very different stories. And so, as Jessie tries to organize her own experiences, she's decided that her Aunt Jessie's story has been chopped up for too long. She's tired of trying to deduce who Aunt Jessie was based on sketches in a coloring book. She wants to know the story the way it would go in a real book, the kind with chapters. Maybe it can help her navigate her way through the kind of transition her aunt never got to finish. Which means she's going to have to ask her waspy family some uncomfortable questions. That was good. I haven't really talked about her like that in a long time, so that was nice. And now I have to go take an anvil. <laughs> it's the crying. <laughs> it's the ugly crying. Yeah, so fun. <laughs> That's next time on Family Ghosts, when Jesse's story continues. Produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Thanks to Jesse Pascarelli for sharing her story with us. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. We use incidental music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Family Ghosts comes out every other week. And if you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between new episodes, please check out Fisher Family Ghosts. It's a recap podcast for the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary, and which, it won't surprise you to learn, was a source of great inspiration for this very podcast. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under and then talk about the ways the themes, characters, and story influence our own approaches to storytelling, not to mention our perceptions of our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back in two weeks with the next chapter of Jesse's story. Thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.